ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. The most successful companies don't improve an industry. They invent one. Ride the Moonshot ETF from Direction. These are 50 U.S. companies with potential for significant and disruptive impact in biotech, nanotech, space exploration, and more. The Moonshot Innovators ETF from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, so tomorrow is 420, April 20th, which means on this podcast, we're going to talk about what else but cannabis and cannabis ETFs. And I have an excellent guest for you. I'll be joined by Morgan Paxia, co-founder and managing director of Poseidon Asset Management, who's the sub-advisor on the Advisor Shares Poseidon Dynamic Cannabis ETF, ticker PSDN. This is actively managed, and it can actually employ a little bit of leverage as well. But Poseidon was one of the first firms dedicated to investing exclusively in the cannabis space. So I'm looking forward to this because cannabis ETFs have been extremely performance challenged, uh, shall we say, over, over the past few years. They just can't seem to find a footing, even though I think most people would agree there's been a lot of growth in the space. I think a lot of people believe uh, there's significant potential moving forward, but the performance simply hasn't been there. So I'll have Morgan explain uh, what he's seeing on the ground right now. Obviously, a lot of this ties into the regulatory environment with pot still being illegal at the federal level. So we'll get into all of that and, of course, spotlight the uh, ETF. Also joining me this week will be David Miller, co-founder and CIO of Strategy Shares, who offers an ETF that I feel like quietly become pretty popular. This might surprise some people. This thing has nearly $1.6 billion in it. The Strategy Shares NASDAQ 7 Handle Index ETF, ticker HNDL, handle. And we'll get into exactly what this does. But the bottom line is rain, snow, or shine, this thing seeks to offer a 7% annual distribution yield. It's referred to as a target distribution ETF. So I'll have David explain exactly how they're accomplishing that. Uh, pretty impressive feat in this environment. And we'll also discuss the overall strategy shares approach to the ETF market. Now, to start this week, back from a highly successful ETF conference in Miami Beach, I now have on the line with me Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. We're going to talk a little uh, exchange conference active ETFs, a little marijuana ETF. So let's get into all of that right now. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, have you uh, recovered from last week? I've got to be honest, I'm still dragging. Hey, Nate. Uh, well, it was an amazing conference. Very tremendous. You know, I'm still recovering more from the high of being part of an event that was so popular from advisors, from asset managers. 
But I did get a chance to spend some much-earned family time this weekend with my family. Uh, so hopefully you did as well. Did you get to catch up a little bit? I, I did. It was a mix of uh, family and then catching up on work. I feel like anytime I'm, I'm gone from the office for more than a day or two, I pay for it. But uh, this was well worth it. Absolutely loved reconnecting with everybody. Uh, it, it, as we had talked about there, I mean, it had been two-plus years since everybody had been back together, and a lot has changed in the industry over that time. Clearly, a lot of momentum around the space. So I just thought it was great getting everybody uh, back together. And I, I will say, I mean, congratulations to you and everyone at ETF Trends and ETF Database uh, Advisor Circle. I thought it was a highly successful event. I obviously really enjoyed it. And, and by the way, a shameless plug, but for people who missed it, Todd, you and I, along with ETF Trends, Dave Nodig and Advisor Circles, John Swolves, we actually recorded ETF Prime Live last week from the event. And I, I thought we offered a pretty comprehensive recap of, of everything. So for listeners, be sure to check that out if you missed it. I was going to say I did too, but it was also just nice to to hear people, you know, on Twitter, you know, people within the industry, either who were there or not there, um, were, were, were saying favorable things about it too. So it was great. You know, just to reiterate, we had over 2,000 registrants, many satisfied attendees, asset managers that want to come back with more meeting space, advisors that were happy to see a diverse lineup of speakers. It was it was tremendous. Well, and I thought it was neat just walking around the, uh, the, the marketplace or, or the exhibit hall, I think it was called marketplace, just to see the number of new issuers who had a presence there. Issuers who we hadn't seen a couple of years ago. And the other thing, too, they're walking around was just the crypto presence. Uh, I know it wasn't intentional, but some people you know, made the comment, hey, this was like a, a hybrid ETF crypto conference. I thought that was a good thing. I mean, I think it shows the future direction of the industry and not just with a whole spot Bitcoin ETF topic, but, you know, down the road, the tokenization of ETFs and, and those sorts of things. I thought it was good seeing the, the crypto presence. Um, okay, Todd, so Agreed. I, I want to get into to several topics this week. And you actually just published a, a piece, which this is perfect because I, I thought it dovetails on one of our key themes from the conference, which was the future of actively managed ETFs. And you wrote uh, specifically about two sessions at the conference that really stood out to you. So one was with Brett Winton of ARK Invest, and the other was with uh, Chris Davis of Davis Advisors. And, and I'll let you explain your take here. But for people who didn't attend exchange. I'll just note, active management was absolutely front and center. I, I thought it was clear as day. Uh, we, we saw active managers of all stripes looking to leverage the ETF wrapper. I made the comment that because of the environment that we're currently in with rising rates and inflation, I think active managers feel like maybe this is a good time to uh, attempt to to demonstrate the value of active management, but w walk us through your take here before I steal all your uh, thunder. No, well, first of all, I appreciate I appreciate it. So, uh, my theme throughout the conference and the conference itself was tied to actively managed ETFs. So, just let's set the stage again. Active ETFs are about four percent of the overall ETF marketplace. In the first quarter, they had nearly triple uh, the net inflows that that would be represented. They had eleven percent. Of the net inflows, I got to do an educational session on the first day, a tutorial about what's happening in the active ETF space. And then I had the pleasure, as you mentioned, of, of interviewing both Brett Witten of ARC and Chris Davis of Davis Advisors. And those are polar opposite uh, active managers. I'm sure many folks know of ARC and, and through Kathy Wood. Brett Witten is the director of research. Um, obviously a disruptive thematic approach uh, to investing. But what was also interesting, I don't know if you were in the room uh, when Bob Asani was interviewing Kathy Wood on stage, but the Morningstar uh, rating and commentary that was, let's just say it, it was a negative rating. In fact, that was actually the rating uh, that, that Morningstar has now on ARKK. Uh, Kathy Wood had to defend the investment process, the team, so the fact that we had Brett Winton up there the next day, it was just, it was planned that way um, to be able to showcase his capabilities, the team's depth, the fact that he was speaking the same language. So for people who were concerned that it was all a, a one woman band, they got to see uh, Brett in action and hopefully came away as pleased as I did that he had a great handle on 
the investment process. There was a lot of rigor behind the stock picking. So I, I was impressed with that. And that was the more growth oriented side of, of my my duo of conversation. So I don't, first of all, did you catch the session I'm referencing? Because that was probably worth us highlighting too. Yeah, I, I caught the session with Bob Pisani and Kathy Wood. And then there was another session. It was a, a breakfast session with uh, Eric Balchunas, where he had Kathy Wood up there as well. And a, a couple things I'll note. First of all, Bob Pisani did not go easy uh, on Kathy Wood. He was very uh, aggressive in a respectful way in asking some very tough questions of, of Kathy. And I thought, Eric Balchunas was the same. What I left there with, and, and I don't know if you got the same impression, it sounds like you did, I, I was highly impressed with how Kathy handled those questions. You know, she takes a lot of criticism from all corners, and, and, and we can talk a little bit more about that, but she really, I thought, acquitted herself well. She, she wasn't dodging questions. Uh, she clearly has high conviction in what she's doing. You may not like her approach uh, for whatever reason. You may not want to own ARKK in your portfolio, and that's fine, but I'll, I'll tell you, up in front of a live audience, fielding some pretty pointed uh, questions. I thought she handled herself well. Um, you, you know, in terms of uh, ARC and, and Davis, one thing that I'll just note, we talked a little bit about this last week, uh, and you're right, both are on different ends of the spectrum. Clearly, ARC is is disruptive innovation, more on the growth side. Davis is is geared towards, uh, towards value investing. But, you know, both of those ETFs, Todd, as you know, are highly concentrated. I mean, ARKK has, what, you know, 35, 36 holdings. Uh, if you look at like the Davis Select U.S. Equity ETF, DUSA, I think that has 27 holdings. And, and we talked about this last week on the podcast, but I, I think that is the and, and we disagree a little bit on this, you and I, but I think that is the path moving forward for successful, actively managed ETFs to have something that is differentiated, more highly concentrated that can supplement the core of the portfolio. But, uh, you, you know, bottom line is, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, active management was absolutely uh, a, a key topic here, and there were some great speakers. Agreed. Yeah. So we're, I, I agree with you that there's room for growth within the concentrated portfolio approach. Those advisors that are looking to add uh, some sizzle onto a, a core portfolio that maybe is passively managed with three basis point S&P 500 index based products. You want something more concentrated. You want that conviction. And whether you want it where it holds uh, companies like Coinbase and Zoom and, and Tesla, that would be ARKK, or you want more of a value-oriented approach that's concentrated on, on deep, you know, deep value, high-quality, cash flow-generating companies like Berkshire Hathaway and Wells Fargo, which would be the, the Davis approach. Yeah, there's there's room for it. I, I think that... and and, and I, I want to lead you into something because you did a poll, I think, just specifically uh, for us to talk about that there's uh, I'm, I'm I don't want to get ahead of it. I want you to set it up. But I'm pleasantly surprised that people are as interested in active equity. Uh, I presume the audience for ETFs, too. So let me let me let me not get ahead of you. Why don't you? Why don't you why don't you take the lead? Well, so I'm sitting around last night and I, I knew we were going to talk about actively managed ETFs today. And, you know, I just said I think the path to success for actively managed ETFs is is highly differentiated, more concentrated holdings. And so I ran this poll that basically said, uh, given the current market environment, which offers the best opportunity for investment success moving forward? Um, active or passive equity funds and active or passive fixed income funds. So respondents could choose either active or passive passive for the equity side and active or passive for the fixed income side. And, you know, looking at these results, I'm pulling them up here right now, 62% had at least some uh, form of active. So they selected either active for both or active for equity or active for fixed income. 62%. And then, uh, you know, 26% selected active for both. So they would prefer to be invested in both active stock funds and active uh, fixed income funds. Only 8% said active stock funds and, and active, or I'm sorry, passive fixed income funds. 28% um, said passive stock funds and active bond funds. And then 38% passive across the board. But I, I think you probably walked away with the same thing that I did, where I'm saying, well, hey, the path to success for actively managed ETFs is is these highly concentrated uh, holdings. But that's not really what this poll says. I mean, if you have 62% preferring some form of active in the current environment, I would think that that entails more core holdings in a portfolio. So uh, that that stood out to me. And 
maybe there is a little bit of a shift here. In, you gave the numbers in terms of flows into actively managed ETF so far this year compared to what the asset base were. And clearly, flows are outsized compared to the overall asset base. You know, this speaks, this poll speaks to that a little bit. And I think there were about 500 uh, respondents. And certainly, this isn't a highly scientific poll. But look, you know, I, I think it's a pretty good indication in terms of how people are, are feeling about active. Maybe there is a little bit of a shift here. I, I everything you said I agree with and let's let's be honest um you are the president of the ETF store you have a podcast called ETF Prime I imagine that there's a large contingent of people who are following you that have an ETF slant as opposed to a old school mutual fund slant to it so if they're doing this from an from an ETF perspective then this is a very rosy picture, again, not scientific, but a rosy picture nonetheless of people who are, are interested in actively managed ETFs. And there's a growing number of those firms. I know, you know, I think you might have seen also Matthews Asia is, is coming forward. They're a, a, a very successful mutual fund shop, active management, obviously focused on, on the Asian markets. They're coming. We've got Morgan Stanley coming. We've got a number of firms that are expanding their lineup this year for active ETFs. Um, I think the future is very bright, and I think advisors are going to have a lot more choices. It goes down to, again, can you get your stock or bond calls right to make it worth the, the premium that are charged for it? But as we talked about last time, the premium fee is much smaller uh, in the ETF wrapper than it is in the mutual fund wrapper. So I'm excited about it and excited for the future. Yeah, and as you go through some of the names that are getting involved in Active, uh, just take a step back. Think about the news that we had yesterday uh, where uh, Jay Jacobs, who's been on this podcast, he's head of research for Global X, or he was head of research for Global X. He's now moving over to BlackRock. So he's going to lead thematic and active equity ETFs for uh, for iShares. And, uh, you know, I don't usually talk in industry inside baseball uh, like this, but this caught my attention just because I feel like Jay knows the thematic ETF space as well as anyone anywhere. And I think a lot of people view iShares as, as well they should, as an index-based shop, right, focusing on on cheaper, plain vanilla core exposure. But um, this shows a pretty big commitment to thematics and, and also active by iShares. I don't know if, if, if you thought the same. I thought that was a pretty big hire. I, I, I completely agree with you. So, what iShares is the success that iShares has had, and I think it's representative of, of who uh, you've had on your show. Well, probably don't have somebody to talk about the core, the, the cheap beta oriented products like IVV and IEMG and IEFA um, and the AG, but they're successful there. They're successful with ESG, um, and they're successful, uh, you know, with. with you know, they're increasing their focus on factor. They brought in Lucas Smart uh, from Dimensional Funds about a year ago to run the iShares Factor suite of products. I think of this the same way. You know, Jay is experienced. He knows how to tell the thematic stories well in a simple way. Uh, and that bodes favorably, I think, for ETFs like ICLN, which is their clean energy ETF, uh, IRBO, their robotics, IHack, their cybersecurity ETF iShares isn't known for their thematic ETF suite, but they've got a broad and relatively low cost offering, and I think it's it's likely to be more successful with with Jay as part of the team, given the success that that he helped Global X to have. Global X has still got a, a you know great lineup as well, but I think iShares is now trying to fight back uh, and will have more success with with a, an, an added leader as part of the team. Yeah, and again, I mean, no question on the thematic side. I'm interested to see if there's any uh, additional push on the active side in particular, just looking at, at Jay's title. But, um, Todd, I, I do want to talk a little um, cannabis ETFs, but just to close the loop here, and I, I know I'm bouncing all over the place this morning, but going back to uh, active ETFs and, and Kathy Wood, I was just curious, did you have a chance to – Look at this uh, CityWire opinion piece yesterday. It was from Max Schatzow. Uh, he, he's an RIA attorney where he said the SEC needs to crack down on Ark and Kathy Wood. And, and I, I want to read uh, the, the opening to this. Again, this was a, an opinion piece. He said, Kathy Wood's repeated performance predictions are reckless, harmful to retail investors, anti-competitive, and should be pursued by the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission for violating the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And I'm not going to go through the, the whole piece here, but 
you know, one of the points he made with with what we're talking about, there is going to be a lot of competition in the active ETF space. There is already. And he was making the point that by ARK and Kathy Wood, you know, putting out these these uh, predictions of 40 or 50 percent annual returns over the next five years, that uh, th- this, A, violates the Investment Advisors Act in 1940, but B, you know, it's not fair to other asset managers out there who maybe aren't taking the same approach. And I, I don't want to get into all the legalities here. That's certainly, I, I'll get out ahead of my skis. But the question I'll ask you is, do you think it's wise for ARC to set that kind of bar to be out publicly? We saw it at the conference, right? I think Kathy said something about 50% annual returns moving forward. Do, do, do you have any feelings on that? So again, I don't play a lawyer even on a podcast. So let me. I will. I will. I will let. Uh, I will. I will let the lawyers work out whether what has been said is appropriate or not said. The way I heard it, and again, maybe it's because I'm coming at this from an analyst perspective. I heard that previously that forty percent, now that fifty percent number, as this is what they're f- looking for with the stocks within the portfolio. This is their their goal. Their they are swinging for the fences and hoping to hit home runs. There's going, they won't call it this way, but there are going to be strikeouts when that happens as opposed to hitting singles and doubles at a more uh, consistent, slower growth um, focus. So I think of it as this is their objective, what they're aiming for, um, and not necessarily a, a promise or an expectation that this is what the return should be. That's how I've interpreted it. Clearly, I don't have the same expertise from a compliance or legal perspective that well, certainly the SEC does or anybody that is coordinating with the SEC. So I'll let them work that out. But that's how I interpret it. Um, and I think that's what investors are looking, f- hoping for. That doesn't mean they're going to get that from all of the returns of the portfolio. But that, that's how I interpret it. Yeah, I guess the question is, is that how you know, say retail investors are interpreting it. And, and I guess we don't know that. Um, I, I did think that it was interesting that here you have an RAA attorney out there publicly stating this. Now, you know, you and I both know over the years, there have been plenty of people that have tried to, uh, how should I say, you know, you say something controversial about ARC and Kathy Wood, and that can be good for your business, right? <laughs> We've seen that in the media. Uh, people sort of riding the coattails here of Kathy and everything that she's built. And maybe this is a way to to generate some publicity for the uh, the the RAA attorney, I, I don't know that for sure. I'm just making that up. But nevertheless, you know, this is a reputable uh, source and, and somebody who does know the law. And if nothing else, they wouldn't be putting something like this out there if they thought it could come back to bite them legally. <laughs> so uh, right. I, I don't know. It just I, I was surprised to see that publicly out there. And you know, there's been some chatter here and there just about whether or not. Uh, Kathy Wood is compliant. Eric Balchun is again in that session at the uh, conference last week, uh, asked Kathy Wood about some of these predictions. And I think Kathy responded that, look, she has a compliance person that worked for the SEC for like four years and is well versed. So, you know, I I would assume Kathy Wood is on top of it from a compliance perspective. But maybe this is a a story to watch going forward. Um, Okay, I want to close by briefly talking a little marijuana ETF. So as you heard at the top, I'll be joined shortly by Morgan Paxia from Poseidon. And that uh, they offer a cannabis ETF through advisor share. So again, you can help me set the table here. I, I guess I'll just ask you broadly, Todd. Um, w- what do you make of this space overall right now? Be- because there are definitely a lot of products on the market, but uh, overall, from from my perspective, I feel like the space has been pretty sluggish. Obviously, performance has been a a real big challenge. Is there anything standing out to you in the uh, marijuana ETF space? Yeah, so we we took a look. So thank you gave me the heads up that we would talk about this, and I appreciate that. We took a look at the traffic on ETF database. Uh, as a reminder, I head up the research for ETF trends and ETF database. They work. We're a partnership, um, and the the traffic for cannabis ETFs it spiked in January 2021. That's likely due to the Biden victory and signs that the Democrats might take control of Congress. They ultimately did uh, take control uh, with victories in Georgia. Uh, Since then, the interest in cannabis ETFs has has fallen off sharply uh, throughout 2021. But we did see renewed interest in the last couple of weeks of March. Investors, again, wanting to do their homework uh, on ETF database to be able to learn about these products. I, the two leading products, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, is MSOS, 
from Advisor Shares and MJ, which is an ETF MG product. Um, they're both down uh, sharply, uh, but MSOS is actually lagging by over a thousand basis points this year. But there's been actual net inflows into MSOS, whereas MJ has been ignored. The Advisor Shares product has been seeing a lot of interest, a lot of flows coming in. That is a more U.S. centric of the two products um, versus MJ. So that's probably playing a role in terms of the potential uh, legislation that could happen there. But this is, this is as you mentioned, a crowded space. We obviously uh, have another product, I believe, coming to market tomorrow uh, because it's 420. Uh, I think Roundtail is coming to market with, with an ETF. So there's there's no lack of supply of products. We'll just, you know, is, it, is there enough demand um, to, to meet investors where they are? No, that's the story to me. And by the way, that uh, Roundhill cannabis ETF that's coming out tomorrow, you're, you're correct. The ticker on that is weed, uh, which that's got to be up there with a toke on the uh, on the cannabis tickers. But no, and, and I'll talk a little bit about this with Morgan as well. I just there are a lot of products on the market. And I think what's interesting to me is none of these have closed, at least not that I'm aware of. Maybe there's there's one or two that have closed over the, the past two years. What that tells me is that issuers of these cannabis ETFs, they have optimism in the space. They feel like it's just a matter of time but before the space turns, because again, it has been performance challenge. And so you have a lot of ETFs that are just hanging out right now. And I think hoping to capitalize whether we get, you know, federal legalization or, or whatever. So I, I just think this is going to be an interesting space to watch. There, there always seems to be a buzz around it, no pun intended. Um, and you know, but will this translate into success for some of these ETF issuers? I think, again, we'll just have to watch it. But uh, Todd, excellent stuff as always. Again, really enjoyed visiting you, uh, visiting with you at Exchange last week. I, I just thought that was uh, such a great event. Again, congrats to you and your team. Uh, I'm already looking forward to next year. But thank you for joining me this week. Thanks a lot for having me, Nate. Have a good day. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. Did 2020's market crash shed a new light on how you view your portfolio risk? CDC, the Victory Shares U.S. Equity Income Enhanced Volatility Weighted ETF, helps investors curb emotional decision-making by investing in large-cap dividend stocks with the ability to systematically shift to cash during times of market duress in a tax-efficient manner. Visit vcm.com slash CDC today to learn more. Carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses before investing. To obtain a prospectus or summary prospectus containing this and other important information, visit vcm.com slash prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. This ETF is distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. All right, my next guest is Morgan Paxia, co-founder and managing director of Poseidon Asset Management, who's behind the Advisor Shares Poseidon Dynamic Cannabis ETF, ticker symbol PSDN. This just launched in November, and Morgan, along with his sister uh, Emily, they founded Poseidon back in 2013. They were actually one of the first firms dedicated to investing in the cannabis space, and uh, Morgan's now on the line with me from San Francisco. Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. So is uh, 420 tomorrow, is that like a national holiday out there in California? You know, it's become a <laughs> national holiday at this point, but certainly did start in California. It's a big deal for our industry. Everyone's pretty excited this year, uh, especially with, you know, the pandemic starting to become more in the, in the rearview mirror, you know, that people are starting to do things in person again. So certainly a lot of excitement this year. Okay, so tell us uh, a little bit about Poseidon Asset Management and uh, perhaps mm -hmm. how you got involved in the cannabis space to begin with, and then we'll get into the uh, ETF. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, we started the firm back in, in 2013. It was Emily and I. We were both in different professional careers before that. I was working in investment management, started my career at UBS um, many years ago. But, you know, investing has always been something of a passion to me. I started buying stocks when I was 12 years old with lawnmower money. Um, Emily was more of the um, market research, uh, psychology-focused 
uh, professional for a long time. Um, but we lost both of our parents to cancer at a young age. Um, they were both uh, very open-minded individuals, thought the war on drugs was very unjust, actually thought cannabis was a, a better um, consumption for, you know, managing stress than drinking alcohol. Um, but, you know, it was illegal. So it wasn't really uh, present for us, especially as kids. It was not around for us. But uh, when my dad was in hospice care, we remember a nurse offering him just something to try to ease some pain in the final days. Um, you know, he's on all these different opiates and all this stuff. And uh, he wouldn't do it because it was illegal. And, you know, that kind of planted a seed for Emily and I. And then years later, um, Emily was doing a lot of work in California for market research purposes and seeing um, dispensaries at the time, um, you know, where it was very, very primitive packaging, you know, a lot of just plastic baggies stapled on with a business card kind of thing. And she's like, no, 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 this is going to become a very significant mainstream CPG wellness. You know, so she had the vision of what cannabis is becoming today. Um, and so we just started talking about, well, what could we do? We had a passion perspective from a family, um, you know, history, but then also from a um, an investor mindset from my side of things and her vision of what this could evolve to. And so when we started looking around, there were no funds. And, and we just thought that was an unbelievable opportunity. Uh, when can you be a first-time fund manager in something that could emerge to be a multi-billion dollar industry right here in our backyard and no one's doing it? So it was just like this aha moment. And um, it's been a journey, but uh, really glad we did it when we did. And it was, you know, it's been an extremely difficult thing to do in the early days. As you can imagine, being federally illegal, uh, all the challenges with finding bank accounts, finding fund administrators, finding auditors, you know, all the essential pieces of, of fund management was very hard and, and, and tumultuous in the early days. But um, but it's it's we're on a great trajectory as an industry and and, you know, her vision is it's amazing that uh, she saw that. And, you know, together we've executed on, on quite a bit. Um, and I feel like we're still just getting started as an industry. What an unbelievable uh, background story. That's that's just remarkable. So early on, did you you and Emily just immerse yourself in the space and trying to research the space, get up to speed on everything from the regulatory side to what what's happening on the ground with product? What, what did that look like early on? Yeah, absolutely. We we really thought it was important to be dedicated um, because you have. It, we believed it would become a, a very complex industry. We thought it would be very similar to how prohibition ended uh, from an alcohol perspective, and how it would probably look like a patchwork of regulatory um, uh, dynamics across multiple different states, and and how they would open and when they would open. And so we, we became, you know, very immersed in, in a lot of different aspects. So not only from the bottom up of what companies would look like, but top down from a, a regulatory perspective. And so we thought it was a very important to stay focused on completely on cannabis and hemp, um, but do nothing else. And so that's what the Poseidon focus has been from that time period. And, you know, at that time, there was no research. There was no comparables. There was nothing when looking at companies that to, to give yourself a baseline, you had no idea how things would evolve from a regulatory perspective in these different states. So there was definitely a bit of the idea of we're going to build this rocket ship as it's taking off. But if we don't do that, um, you know, we're going to be behind the curve and it'll be a lot harder. And, um, and so, you know, as a result, we've worked with so many companies that started with, you know, 5, 10, 20 employees that are today employ thousands of employees are generating, you know, over a billion in sales. And so and we've, we've seen this development across multiple states now from starting as either open markets or very limited markets, starting as adult use or, or starting with medical programs first. You know, so we've seen so many different iterations. And so just growing through this industry, is, I feel like, just gives us a lot of knowledge about what things are looking like. And, you know, a great example is today or, or this week, you know, on 421 in the state of New Jersey, we'll have finally the first adult use legal sales will start transacting in um, some of the initial uh, retail doors, um, something that we're very excited about, but not unsurprising to Poseidon that it's taken longer than, you know, what was originally laid out, again, because of our, our deep knowledge of you know, working in these states and seeing how these things progress. And especially when you look at, you know, are these red states or these blue states? Um, you know, what what are the kind of the political backdrops within those markets? 
Yeah, and I, I want to come back to that and, and talk a little bit more about the cannabis market more broadly and where we currently stand. Let, let's first talk sure. about the ETF. Again, the Advisor Shares Poseidon Dynamic Cannabis ETF, ticker PSDN. This is actively mm-hmm. managed. I mentioned uh, at the top, you can actually utilize a little bit of leverage here as well. Just explain your overall I- investment approach here. Yeah, so this is really built off of um, our first fund is a hedge fund structure. And so we, we're using a lot of the same uh, approach that we did with that strategy and, and continue to do today. Um, but we wanted to create a vehicle that wasn't just limited to uh, wealthy individuals. We wanted a, a, a tool, an investment tool that could be utilized from individual investors all the way to institutional investors. And so that's, we, we just tried to lift out our investment approach. And so from our perspective, you know, we've been dynamic from day one. And that's why we intentionally named the ETF, you know, the advisor shares beside dynamic cannabis ETF is we just think you can't be too rigid. It still is early days. Things will evolve differently. And, and so we can't be too stuck into one path in our space. It's already a pretty limited investment uh, landscape from a public markets perspective. And so if we felt like then if you were, you know, say you, we could only do X, then we felt like then we would be potentially missing a lot of returns. Now, it's been a very challenging period since we launched. Um, that's no secret at this point. Our space has been extremely uh, under a lot of pressure uh, for the last 14 months. And we thought when we launched in November, it was actually going to be great. We're getting to the tail end of this. But, you know, here we are, you know, far lower than, than anybody really expected. But um, but from our perspective, you know, we really think it's it helps to be dynamic. And when we, you can even look from when we launched the ETF, we had more elements in the strategy. But as the market continued to sell off, because we can be that globally dynamic capability, we've really focused the portfolio in on where we think the highest quality, best opportunities are in our space. And as you mentioned, we also have that dynamic leverage capability. So not only are we dynamic in what we can do in the underlying but we can also uh, increase our leverage or decrease our leverage as we see fit. Today, we're about 1.33 times levered. Um, and, and the nice thing is this is not one of these passive, every day you have to reload the, the leverage and you have these you know, crazy carrying drag and all that stuff. This is much more like a traditional kind of almost like a long-only hedge fund in an ETF-like product for you know, 80 bips. Yeah, and last I checked, top holdings right now are green thumb, uh, 21%, mm-hmm. Verano Holdings at 17%, and True Leaf Cannabis at, at 17%. Um, Morgan, as I know you're well aware, there are a lot of cannabis ETFs on the market right now. And, and actually, even uh, advisor shares, they offer two other cannabis ETFs. I, I'm just curious, can you talk more about uh, your decision to launch a product into that kind of competitive environment and maybe explain how you think you can stand out. Is it the active management, sure. that dynamic approach and the leverage component that you see as differentiators here? I, you know, I think the leverage is something super unique. Um, I think that's unique just in a more broader context of the ETF landscape, um, you know, because we have this active leverage um, and utilizing it via the swaps, right? Because that's, that's how we're affecting the underlying exposure of these, of the names you mentioned. We're 100%, currently 100% in U.S. multi-state operators um, that do not trade on listed exchanges. Um, and that's where these ETFs can be super powerful um, because we are a New York Stock Exchange listed ETF. And so that gives us a lot more access to these investors. You know, we're, we're having a lot of conversations with institutional investors all the way through to retail individual investors. And so to be able to have that discussion, so we do think that leverage is a, is a great differentiator. When we finally get out of this, you know, really nasty bear market, there's a lot of upside and, and having that bit of leverage, which we can take all the way to 1.5 times. We're just not there yet because the market is still not in our favor, but we want to be pretty, you know, relatively within a band of a certain amount of leverage. So people do know when they're buying PSDN, that's what they're getting. They're getting an extra bit of, of leverage there. And that is truly differentiated from the others. You know, I think from our perspective, this is all we do. Poseidon is 100% focused on cannabis. You know, a lot of the other uh, ETFs out there, um, they are running other strategies potentially. And so we think we're a great complement on the advisor shares platform because, you know, in a year or two, who knows what PSDN may look like. The environment may look very, very different, and we could have a lot of international exposure um, where we may, may have a lot more ancillary technology, cannabis technology exposures, but we just feel today we're here, and this is where we think the the best potential to generate those returns are. So 
you know, for investors that understand that Poseidon is cannabis, can, cannabis is Poseidon, you know, that's you get that element and then you get that leverage. And I think that is a, is a great value add uh, in the marketplace. Um, I know, as you mentioned, I, I was hearing earlier about, you know, there's a new one launching on 420. Um, you know, the ETFs do serve a good purpose because access is very hard to get to where the good opportunities are. Um, and I'm talking right now, the U.S. multi-state operators. I don't think there's a lot of value at all in like the Canadian names. Unfortunately, there's a lot of challenges with some of their balance sheets and margin profiles and all that stuff. But I think there's a lot more opportunity here. And so for more ETFs that can focus there and bring in more capital should also help to stabilize the broader industry, uh, you know, the public markets for cannabis. And by the way, you mentioned the swaps on the uh, multi-state operators, the MSAs. Hopefully I don't butcher this, but but for listeners, basically these are uh, pot producers that are operating in states where marijuana is legal, but obviously marijuana is not legal at the federal level. So these stocks cannot list on uh, the New York Stock Exchange or, or NASDAQ. So they're on Canadian exchanges or, or over-the-counter, and so you use these swaps to get exposure to those companies. Um, it, Morgan, with our remaining time, let, let's talk more about the cannabis market. You, you mentioned the bear market that it's been in, and it's so interesting because I think most people get the overall uh, growth story here, right? They, they know consumer and medical demand is picking up. I think a lot of people can certainly envision this market continuing to to develop and become much more robust moving forward. But this space mm-hmm. has been extremely performance challenged, right? If you just look at all the cannabis ETFs on the market, the performance has not been good. What, what do you think has been going on here and, and what changes that? Yes. Uh, and thank you for clarifying on the swaps. I, I do think it's very important for people to understand that. Um, as far as the public markets go in our space, so right now the multi-state operators, the U.S. multi-state operators, there's 4% institutional ownership. That's how constrained they are. So it's just the fringes that are, are finding a way to own uh, these underlying names, So it, which is completely inverted relative to other sectors of the economy, right, where there's 60, 70, 80% institutional ownership. And so we have this challenge where, you know, capital just can't get in yet. And that's, again, why we think these tests can be very helpful to shepherding capital in, because we can work with some of our, our, our service providers to go and get that exposure. Um, but unfortunately, in the interim, there's been way too much emphasis from the individual investor on uh, banking, literally, on federal action. And, you know, from our perspective, trying to time a federal move is is such a low probability success rate because you know you're you're talking about DC where there are so many challenges that DC is trying to deal with right now but where the action is happening is at the state level and at the company level and that's where we try to educate folks is to pay attention to what's happening there because they're solving a lot of the issues that when the federal government can finally act great but we will already resolve so much of it and a couple examples in the state of New York um, they're actually creating a, a potential tax program that could help to offset some of the onerous taxes that our industry bears because of this federal um, situation. Probably too much to get into today, but there's something called 280E tax code, which was from the from a cocaine baron back in the was in the 80s in in Miami, and that was taking standard business deductions. Um, the federal government said you can't do that because you're a legal business, and so that's where 280 was born. We bear that burden today. It takes something like 50-plus percent to 70-80% of net income from these large operators goes to the federal government. So it makes them very hard from a free cash flow perspective. Um, so and so that's, that's the federal overhang, and we feel like there should be a discount uh, for our industry relative to other industries because of that federal situation. But currently today, we are far, far discounted below that. Um, and it's and so we just are, that's why we think it's so attractive. I mean, there's there's pretty considerable upside from the institutional conversations we're having. There's more and more groups educating themselves, seeing this as a value opportunity with growth uh, for years to come. And, you know, especially as you're looking at a more macro situation where there's inflation's rampant, potential slowing of the economy, we have regulatory-driven growth by these states opening for years to come. New Jersey's just opening right now for adult use. It's projected to be over a $2 billion market by 2025, according to Headset. 
Data, which is a big data firm in our industry. We have New York that's coming very soon. Um, you know, so there's just so much more growth potential, but we're trading at, you know, very, very low multiples. I think on a 22 basis, the top cohort of companies are trading about 10 times EBITDA. Um, so, you know, very interesting proposition from a, a valuation perspective with that growth. Morgan, just about two minutes left. Um, I, I th- think it makes a lot of sense, as you noted, to focus on the, the state level regulatory environment. But I, I'm curious what you think about the, the federal regulatory situation. Obviously, cannabis is still classified as a Schedule One drug. It's not federally legal. Um, where do you think we are in that regulatory process right now in terms of moving towards federal legalization or at a minimum decriminalizing marijuana? And it's interesting to me because if you look at just about any public poll out there, it does seem like there's a lot of support for legalization among the broader public. And I think we all know politicians love passing legislation that a lot of their constituents support, right? That, that helps them get reelected. So what, what do you think the holdup is here? Yeah, um, up to this point, there's been a bit of, um, well, you know, there's political, uh, uh, you know, inputs at play here. You know, in the previous uh, regime, uh, when we had the Senate Majority Leader was Mitch McConnell, you know, he just wouldn't do anything that the, that the Democrats were asking for, right? So he just, even though we had a banking initiative passed, a federal banking initiative called the Safe Banking Act, passed the House multiple times, but would never get heard in the Senate. Now, this time around, we have Schumer as the as the Senate majority leader, and he is unwilling to hear anything other than his super comprehensive bill, which he hasn't even really developed yet. I mean, he was supposed to have something out uh, right about now. And then just last week, he said he, he kicked it out to August because he needed to start having conversations with Republicans about this bill. So he's way behind on anything there. Um, you know, it doesn't help our industry, you know, because even him saying that has, you know, sent our stocks down even more because people are like, oh, that's, you know, federal movement is even further out. Um, and, and you know, not surprised, you know, we're not surprised um, that that's happening. But so that's been some of the problems is there's there's just been, um, you know, trying to get both sides to the table in doing this. Um, in the interim, we have more states opening. Um, for example, Alabama is now a medically legal uh, cannabis state, which you know, four or five years ago, if you remember Attorney General Jeff Sessions, he tried to shut our industry down, mm-hmm. and that's his home state. And now it's medically legal there. They're still developing all the regulations and everything. But as we see more conservative states legalizing cannabis, and then you have these senators and um, representing these states seeing it in their hometowns, we think that's going to really help move the conversation at the federal level, because then it'll be a lot more tangible, and they will see firsthand that it works. You know, that effective regulation, taxation, the job creation. But, you know, there was just a study today just noting about the precipitous drop of opiate use in states with legal cannabis. And we have an opiate epidemic in this country. And so to see that is just another further, you know, trying to break down those misconceptions of the past that cannabis is this gateway drug. It's actually being now proven to be an exit drug for some of these other things. So, you know, we, it's just, it's a process. It takes time. Um, it's taking longer than obviously the stock market would like it to, you know, that's penalizing it like crazy. And so that's why we just try to reframe the focus to where action's happening. And, um, and we just, that's why I say also it's early days. I mean, you know, we're Poseidon is now, you know, nine plus years into doing this. And I, and I just still feel like there's, you know, 10 years, an incredible return opportunity, um, on our horizon. So, you know, we're still very excited about it. Sure, we're frustrated. And I know our investors that, you know, have been in the, um, you know, the public markets are definitely very frustrated. So we're all ready for a win. But it certainly feels like there's there's uh, some good stuff in the oven that's coming out pretty soon. Well, Morgan, really enjoyed the perspective this week. Congratulations on the launch of the uh, ETF. Certainly wish you all the success here. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you. That was Morgan Paxia, co-founder and managing director of Poseidon Asset Management. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. 
Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by David Miller, co-founder and CIO of Strategy Shares, who currently offers five ETFs, nearly $1.7 billion in assets. That includes their current flagship product, the NASDAQ 7-Handle Index ETF, ticker symbol HNDL, Handle. And uh, David's now on the line with me from New York. David, great to connect. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, so let's jump right in and talk about Handle. This is your most popular ETF. Uh, it's what's called a target distribution ETF. So it's targeting a 7% annual distribution yield. I would say this was really a, a first-of-its-kind product. So let's get into some detail here. J just explain for us how this works. Sure. Uh, like you described, uh, the fund is a target distribution product. So it's really targeting what investors are ultimately trying to get out of their investments, which is some income to, to live on. Specifically, uh, this fund targets a uh, 7% annualized uh, distribution yield. It pays uh, one twelfth of uh, 7% uh, each month uh, as a distribution uh, to investors. And uh, the way it's designed to do that from a portfolio construction standpoint, I think is pretty neat. It has two key components to it. Uh, first half is a fixed allocation core portfolio. Although, you know, I think when most people think about a fixed allocation core portfolio, they're generally thinking about a 60-40 model, 60% equities to 40% uh, bonds. And, you know, while 60-40 is certainly done very well historically, uh, the big problem uh, with 60-40 is that when you run into one of these years uh, where equities uh, get slammed, but bonds fly kind of like a 2008 or like a March of 2020 period, uh, you quickly realize if you're 60% equities and equities are twice as volatile as bonds, uh, that's actually a portfolio that's about 80% equity risk, uh, given uh, the higher level of uh, volatility from uh, equity investments. And where we found historically you get the best risk-adjusted return is when you have an equal balancing of the risk on exposures from equities uh, versus the risk off uh, defensive exposures uh, from uh, bonds. And that that's the first half of uh, the portfolio. Uh, second half is through this partnership that we have with uh, NASDAQ and uh, Dorsey Wright. And Dorsey Wright has some great tactical asset allocation models that are really designed to identify the asset classes that are most likely to be able to work well for the environment that we're actually in at any given point in time. So if we're in a more growth-oriented environment, <clears throat> those models are going to tilt more towards growth and in income stocks, MLPs, REITs, preferred stocks, high-yield bonds, things of that nature that tend to participate in that growth. Whereas if we're in a more risk-off recessionary mode, uh, those models are going to tilt more towards those asset classes that tend to do better during a recession. You know, Investment-grade corporate bonds, uh, mortgage bonds, covered call strategies, utility stocks, and things of that nature. And you know, what we've also found is that uh, while both those strategies tend to do well all by themselves historically, both the fixed allocation uh, core component and the Dorsey Wright uh, tactical asset allocation piece, the one part we really do know from uh, Markowitz's work is that there's only one real free ride in investing, which is diversification. And the numbers tell you that if you could put together two non-correlated return streams, that the combination of those two 
should get you about a 41% lift in your risk-adjusted returns over time. And largely because that fixed allocation core piece is not that correlated with the uh, Dorsey Wright tactical component piece, the blend of the two has done very well. Uh, fund's been, you know, five-star rated uh, by Morningstar uh, over the, the past three years. Uh, the fund has uh, been uh, pretty much right in line uh, with its targets, about 6.7% uh, annualized, uh, top decile of the category in uh, the past uh, three years and top quartile over the past year. So, you know, that's kind of the idea behind the fund and really uh, is designed to target that unique need that investors have, you know, for income. And there, there's not many funds that are able to uh, pay a distribution uh, like that in a consistent way. Uh, so, you know, I think pretty neat from that perspective. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah. And just to give listeners an idea, the uh, current top 10 holdings uh, cash at 11%, I believe that's uh, collateral for the uh, total return swap for the leverage, which we can talk about. Uh, the iShares yep. Core U.S. Ag Bond ETF, ticker AGG, that's 10%. The Spider Portfolio Aggregate Bond ETF, SPAB, that's 10%. The Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, BND, that's at 10%. Uh, the Alarian MLP ETF, AMLP, I'm sorry, AMPL, that's 7%. Uh, Vanguard Dividend Appreciation ETF, VIG, that's at 6%. QQQ, 6%. You have the Wisdom Tree U.S. Efficient Core Fund, NTSX, very interesting product, that's 6%. Schwab U.S. Reed ETF, SCHH, 5%. And then the uh, Utility Select Sector Spider ETF, XLU, is at 5%. And, David, I, I think you were doing a good job of heading down this path of, of describing the risk-return profile of this product. But can you just boil this down a little bit further? Do, do you view this as a fixed income replacement? Does this fit into the alternatives bucket? I'm just trying to get a better sense as to how investors uh, might, might actually use this in a portfolio and what they should expect in terms of the ride. Sure. Uh, well, the, the way we think about it from a risk allocation uh, perspective is if somebody were trying to target a 7% annualized uh, return over time, what's the portfolio that they could build uh, that would have the best risk-adjusted returns to try to accomplish that goal? And that's really the underlying concept behind the fund is trying to you know, maximize that risk-adjusted return over time while targeting a total return somewhere around uh, 7%. And that really kind of puts you in that in-between place. It's not an alternative because the underlying uh, assets in the fund are very diversified, uh, but there, there's nothing really alternative about it. They're, they're core asset classes for the most part in a, a portfolio. There's you know no funky stuff in there like uh, crypto or forex or uh, like uh, VIX exposures or things of that nature. Uh, but then when you look at it from uh, where it does fit, it's really in that ba- balanced allocation piece. You know, portfolios that combine bonds and equities in uh, one portfolio is really uh, where where it's uh, most suited is uh, trying to build the best version of a balanced product. What about in the current market environment we're experiencing where we have rising rates and 40-year high inflation? And I look at those top uh, holdings that I just walked through. I mean, there is, what, 30 percent in aggregate bond ETFs, and there's some leverage on top of that. How do you expect this ETF to react if we do continue to see rates rise? Sure. So rates rising in and of themselves is not really a bad thing for the fund. Like if you think about a year like uh, last year, for example, rates rose uh, as well. But the fund was, by the end of the year, able to exceed its uh, target uh, return. It was up about uh, 9% with uh, the bond ag uh, down. And certainly if you think about other years where rates uh, have risen, if you think about a year like uh, 2013, uh, for example, uh, rates were up, uh, bonds were down, but the S&P was up 32% uh, because the reason rates were up so much is because the economy was strong. Or similarly, if you think about a year like 2009, recovery off of uh, the 08-09 uh, recession, uh, clearly uh, equities uh, were up significantly, up about 263 for the S&P uh, for 2009, but bonds weren't doing well that year. So it's not really designed to uh, try to pick uh, which type of interest rate environment that we're going to be in, but rather to try to build a blended portfolio 
that should get the smoothest type of risk-adjusted uh, results uh, over a, a long uh, full cycle uh, period. So, you know, we think if rates continue to go up, uh, but unemployment stays low and the economy stays strong, that should be fine. However, of course, you know, if rates continue to go up and uh, stocks do poorly, that's not going to be good for anybody, including us. There's uh, no great place uh, to hide in uh, that that type of uh, scenario. But more likely than not, if uh, the economy actually goes south, you won't continue to see rates going up. So that's kind of the nice uh, concept behind the portfolios. You have that uh, seesaw type of way that bonds and equities, at least historically, have uh, behaved in uh, risk-on versus risk-off periods that tends to uh, smooth out your uh, return profile. And David, sort of on this note, I I think one thing that is important to point out about this ETF is, depending upon the market environment, it may not be possible for Handel to generate a 7% annual distribution yield. And so therefore, some of what an investor gets back each month could be a return of capital, right? A, A return of their original investment. How should investors think about that when evaluating this ETF? Sure. So I guess there's kind of two different moving pieces to to that question. Uh, So first is in terms of uh, target return. There's certainly no guarantee whatsoever that the fund's going to hit a 7% uh, total return uh, over time uh, in the same way that, you know, bonds and equities uh, could both potentially uh, not hit the goals that investors are are generally shooting for. Uh, But that uh, issue is a little bit independent of the uh, return of capital piece. Because even in periods where the fund uh, has done well or has exceeded its return return target, it still had a, a return of capital component. And return of capital on its surface certainly doesn't sound great. It sounds like you're uh, getting your own money back. And in the case where uh, you're losing money, that, that is what return of capital is in a more literal way. But even you know a full three-year period where we've had some uh, returns that are more in line with uh, what we're targeting – Uh, you still have a significant return of capital component because the way the fund is designed is to take advantage of all the benefits that ETFs uh, have for investors. There's this thing called the create and redeem process, whereas if you had an embedded capital gain in a security that you held in your personal account, you're going to have to pay taxes on that, Uh, whereas an ETF through the create and redeem process uh, can increase their cost basis while retaining a positive return in an investment that enables them to uh, eliminate a lot of those capital gains that would otherwise uh, need to be paid in a way that's 100% kosher uh, with the tax code. So I think that's really where it's kind of interesting is we've been able to get a lot of our distribution uh, categorized by the IRS as a return of capital, even though uh, the returns have been in line with uh, our targets, and that's just a heck of a lot better uh, for investors, if they can get the returns they're hoping for, uh, but get them categorized in a way that's uh, not taxable. All right, David, just a, a couple minutes left. I did want to give you the uh, opportunity uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar with the strategy shares ETF lineup overall. Besides handle, you do offer four other ETFs. So there's the NASDAQ 5 handle index ETF, ticker FIVR, which that's a similar strategy to the one we're discussing here, except a 5% target distribution yield. Uh, there's also the Newfound Resolve Robust Momentum ETF, ticker ROBO, R-O-B-O. There's a gold-hedged bond ETF, ticker GLDB. And then lastly, the uh, HALT Climate Change ETF, ticker NZRO. That just launched back in uh, January. J- just briefly, can you talk about your overall approach to the ETF market here? Like, like how is strategy shares attempting to position themselves competitively? Sure. Everything we're doing at Strategy Shares is a fund where it's trying to solve a problem for investors that is not easy to solve on your own uh, that other ETF providers just aren't doing. So like, clearly nobody needs another S&P 500 uh, ETF. There's tons of those. Uh, But there was nothing that existed in the target distribution category, like our 5% target or 7% uh, target distribution in the HNDL for the seven or the FIVR uh, for the five. If you look at like our GLDB product, there's certainly a lot of uh, bond funds and there's also a lot of gold funds, uh, but there weren't any other gold funds uh, that paid a yield 
like bonds do. You know, gold had traditionally been a uh, dead asset, even though it done very well. It had been up several hundred percent over the past uh, 20 years. It didn't pay any dividends or yield, whereas in that product, uh, it pays about a two and a quarter percent uh, distribution yield uh, from a portfolio of bonds. But then we get exposure to uh, the price of gold and track it one for one uh, through gold futures contracts. Uh, so kind of interesting angle in that if you're looking to invest in gold, uh, but you'd also like to stack a yield on top of it, pretty neat way to go about doing that. And also for bond investors, you know, bonds historically had been great. The problem now is if inflation's running 7 or 8% and you're getting a few percent yield on your bonds, uh, that's a negative 5% real rate of return. Uh, and if you do that for a decade, you know, if you get a few percent yield, you pay taxes on it, and then you get half as much purchasing power back 10 years from now, that's not pretty. Whereas gold's done a great job of maintaining its purchasing power over time. So kind of neat way for both uh, bond investors uh, who want an inflation hedge or gold investors who'd like to stack some yield on top of their returns, kind of neat solution from that perspective. Or like with our Romo ETF, uh, it'll oscillate between being long treasuries versus being long equities. And if you're in a bullish, uh, trending, positive equity environment, that's a great time to participate. Historically, if you've been in a recession, not so much, but that's when uh, treasuries tend to do exceptionally well when you're in a deflationary or recessionary period. Uh, so pretty neat solution where you can uh, have a fund that oscillates between those two asset classes at the times that are best suited uh, for each. Or similarly, with like our NZRO ETF, there's a lot of ESG ETFs out there, but none others that we're aware of that are exclusively focused on those companies that are really trying to solve for climate change in a unique way that's also very profitable uh, to investors. So kind of a, that, that's a, our thought process behind uh, how we launch ETFs is where we think, hey, there's this product I'd really like to have for this problem uh, that nobody else is solving. That, that's what we're seeking to do at Strategy Shares. Yeah, no question. It's a, a unique lineup and, you know, love seeing the success with something like Handle. I mean, that's absolutely, uh, you know, been highly successful. But uh, David, really enjoyed the conversation this week. Uh, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Appreciate it. That was David Miller, co-founder and CIO of Strategy Shares. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Wisdom Tree. If you would like to learn more about Wisdom Tree ETFs, you can visit wisdomtree.com slash cyber. Next week, I'll be joined by Corey Hofstein, co-founder and CIO at Newfound Research. He's going to explain the concept of return stacking and why it's something you may want to consider in the current market environment. Uh, he'll also talk about their suite of ETF models in partnership with Simplify ETFs. And then I'll also be joined by Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas. We're going to talk about his new book, The Bogle Effect. Until then, have a great week, everyone.